Again, welcome to Grace Church Live. I don't want to disappoint those who know me. Over the years, you are accustomed to a particular greeting on Easter morning, so here it is. Welcome to the 15th celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day in 2020. Yes, every Sunday we gather to celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know it's a bit unnatural to uh, listen on Sunday morning via uh, Facebook, and it's very unnatural for me to preach to a nearly uh, empty auditorium. I much prefer uh, the eye-to-eye -eye contact and be able to see your response and uh, to see if you're sleeping uh, during, during the sermon. Uh, it is a bit unnatural and yet it's where we are and we accept that and long for that day when we will return to the God-ordained gathering of God's people Amen. on the Lord's day. This morning our text is Revelation chapter 1. I'm looking at verses 4 through 20 and really want to highlight three things in these verses. I have often called this portion of Scripture resurrection and sovereignty. But in light of the times in which we're living today, I could just as well entitle this message, How to Make the Most of Your Isolation. Listen to the Word of God as I begin reading Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I die, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Word of God offers us many eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They provide irrefutable testimony that Jesus Christ is alive. We know that Christ appeared to Peter and restored him to fellowship and to a place of leadership in the church. I believe Steve will speak on that next week. Peter, because of the resurrection, lived a life full of hope. We also know that Jesus appeared to Paul, the persecutor of Christians, when Paul was on the Damascus Road, and the resurrected Christ transformed the life of Paul. Later, he brought Paul up into the third heaven to see things that he could not even speak about. John also saw the resurrection, resurrected Christ, both in the upper room at the commissioning of the church to make disciples of all nations. And as a consequence of seeing Christ alive, John lived faithfully for many years. We know that he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And when the Roman persecution of the church grew under Emperor Domitian, it became more severe. Tradition says that Domitian burned John in a cauldron of hot oil. That's tradition. But the oil didn't kill him, tradition says, and so the emperor banished him to the Isle of Patmos. That we know from the word of God. We also know that he was later released from exile. He returned to Ephesus, and he lived till the time of Emperor Trajan. It is said that John, after his release, founded churches throughout all of Asia. And when he was finally worn out by old age, he died 68 years after the passion, after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. While in his isolation, I imagine John had to wonder about the apparent triumph 
of alien, oppressive political powers. The apparent failure, perhaps, of the kingdom of God on earth as Christians were being persecuted throughout the world. He was isolated, driven from his church, driven from his ability to minister to those to whom he loved. The brokenness of the world and the apparent triumph of evil seem to contradict at times what we believe about the sovereignty of God. And yet, the resurrection of Christ leads us to assurance that the ultimate triumph of Christ over all things will happen. Jesus says, I am alive forevermore. Nothing will change the fact that Jesus lives. Someday I would like to preach on the whole book of Revelation, but I'm going to wait until I understand it. I do understand the big picture of the book that it was not only written for the church of the first century, but it was written for God's people in all ages to assure them of the triumph of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There are many ways that people look at it. I primarily look at the book of Revelation in what they call an idealist way, and that is what is portrayed in the bowls, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is the kind of struggles that God's people have during this entire period from the resurrection and ascension of Christ until the coming of Christ. And so Revelation is depicting those struggles but assuring us that a sovereign God is in control of them and our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ will win. He does win at the end. I understand that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls uh, sort of portray, they give us three different perspectives of that struggle from the death of and resurrection of Christ to the coming of Christ. They give us three different viewpoints. They each take us to the end, to the final triumph, the second coming of Jesus Christ. John was convinced that Jesus was alive. And in his isolation, in his disappointment, perhaps even with his sadness that Steve prayed about this morning, he made the most of his time in isolation. It was a time when he received and was encouraged by a fresh, a renewed vision of Jesus Christ. And I hope that during our isolation, in our time of, of being shut in more than we want to be shut in, that we are taking time to hear from God as we read his word. We are taking time to see what God is doing in our lives and in our families and in our church, that this time of isolation, as it was with John, might bring about, as it did with John, an even renewed vigor and dedication to the work of God in this world. 
We've got, we must continue to trust and rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? I give you three reasons this morning. Three things I hope we will think about during this time of being shut in and shut out from those we love. Three things that the resurrection declares for us. First of all, it confirms who Jesus is. Words mean nothing unless they can be backed up with reality. This text says that Jesus is the faithful witness, the one who through his life and through his miracles and through his teaching and even through his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension, this Jesus was the one who bore witness to the truth faithfully. His resurrection affirms him as the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one ever to die and rise again, never to die again. We know that there were other resurrections in Scripture. But Jesus is the first to rise again, never to die again. And he is the firstborn. He is the guarantee that others will follow, that if you are in Jesus Christ, you will participate in the resurrection from the dead. It confirms that he is, as our text says, the ruler of the kings of the earth that all of the world is under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. When God raised him from the dead and set him on his throne on high, he determined that though the nations rebel and resist, they will never thwart the purposes of God in this world. Jesus is alive and he rules. And then our text reminds us that he is the one who loves us. And the Greek is very specific. It doesn't say he loved us. I know that my dad loved me. My dad is with the Lord, and I could also say he still loves me because he's alive in the presence of the Lord. But when, it, when the writer says he is the one who is presently, constantly loving us, he is confessing. Jesus is confessing that I'm alive to love you, even in your banishment, even in your oppression, even in your, your, your desperate circumstances, even in your need. You need to know I am constantly loved by the one who lives, the one who is risen from the dead. On the Isle of Patmos, John did not forget that though quarantined on that aisle, the comfort and hope that he had in Jesus Christ was, was, was not dependent on the changing and unpredictable and uncomfortable circumstances of his life. Yes, banished. Yes, alone. Yes, persecuted. But yes, loved. Constantly loved by Jesus Christ. The resurrection confirms that he is the one who has freed us from our sins 
by his blood. Nothing changes that. My pain doesn't change that. My need doesn't change that. My loneliness doesn't change that. In the worst moment of my life, I am still free from my sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the one who has made us a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? A kingdom of priests. For John vanished to the Isle of Patmos. He does not see that God's purpose in calling him has changed. That Jesus is still the Jesus who made John a part of a kingdom of priests whose role in this world is to mediate, is to carry out sacred service to a holy God in behalf of a dying world. Our tough times do not change the fact that God has us here, that we belong to the one who has made us a kingdom of priests. And somehow, in our loneliness, somehow, away from the normalities of life, we need to figure out how do we continue our priestly function in a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Some would say that refers to the Father, and certainly it does refer to the Father and to the Spirit. But if in Revelation 22, it makes clear that the Alpha and Omega as presented in Revelation is Jesus Christ. He is the sum total of all reality. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter. He is Alpha and Omega and everything in between. He is all that we need. The sum total of all that matters, of all that is good and blessed in life. Yes, we need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it confirms that all of this about him is true. But secondly, I believe our text calls us in our isolation to see that the resurrection of Christ affirms God's unchanging purpose for his church. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man. John could look back over his life with great memories of being taught by Jesus Christ. He certainly remembered Jesus' conversation with the disciples and with Peter one day. When he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they replied, well, some say you're Moses, you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then John, the disciples, heard Jesus say this. And upon this rock, upon this confession of truth about who Jesus is, upon this rock, upon Jesus, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here's John banished to the Isle of Patmos, no longer pastoring in Ephesus, no longer able to minister to the people that, that he loves. And yet the words of Jesus have to be ringing in his ear. I will build my church. Your isolation, your banishment does not change God's purpose for his church, that he will build it and the gates of hell, the strongest parts of an ancient city, will not be able to withstand the onslaught, the onward movement of the church of Jesus Christ. John was also there when Jesus stood on resurrection ground, and he called his disciples together, and he said, I want you to know that all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go, make disciples of all the people groups, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. John had to realize on Patmos that the purposes of God, the purposes of Christ for his church do not change. I wonder what went through John's mind. When Jesus, when he was told to write to the church at Ephesus, because that was John's church. And he says, write to the church of Ephesus and tell them that I see a lot of their good works. But I have one thing against them. They lost their first love. And first love, I understand, as that love that is generated by the gospel, by that experience of the gospel in your life, that love that begins to love God with all your heart, and that love which begins to love your brother in Christ. It is said of John that when he was an old man and could not walk anymore, that is, Disciples carried him to church each week. And as they would carry him, he could not say much, but he would say, Brothers, love one another. Brothers, love one another. Brothers, love one another. And they would say, But John, why do you keep saying that? And he would, he would reply, Because Jesus said it's by this that all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. He sees these lampstands, but it's really not the lampstands that represent churches that, that capture his vision. Because when he turns to see the one who is speaking to him, he sees the lampstands, and then he sees Jesus in the midst of that. And it's Jesus that captures his attention. He is one like the Son of Man, the image of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9. He is human. He's a Son of Man, but he is more than human. He has brilliant white hair. His feet are 
gleaming bronze. His eyes are a flaming fire. His voice is like a crashing wave. And from his mouth comes a two-edged sword, and in his hands are seven stars. It is important in isolation. It was important for John. It was important for the seven churches to whom he wrote, by the way, which were probably simply representative of all of the churches that were in Asia Minor and that part of the world of that day. There were certainly more than seven, but they're representative. And they're representative of not only the churches of the first century, but representative of the churches of the entire time period between the ascension of Christ and the coming of Christ. But it's important for John to always have a right view of Jesus Christ and his role and his purpose for the churches in his isolation. That doesn't change. I have to remind myself of that. We do things differently now. But we have to keep thinking about what is God's purpose for the church? Well, God's purpose for the church is to be a light, a lampstand, a light reflector, as Philippians 2 would say, that we reflect the light of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the love of Christ, and that our circumstances, yes, John, you're on Patmos, you have no church, you know, maybe you're able to write and send some letters to, to, to other churches, but, but you're banished, you're out of the normality of ministry, but you need to know that God's purpose for the church does not change because your circumstances change. Amen. He still wants us to shine in the midst of a dark world. And as difficult as the times may be, God still has no other method for reaching a lost and dying world than his people, the church of Jesus Christ. We know that some churches will fail to do that. There will be churches at the end of this coronavirus that will not exist anymore. There are churches that will change to compromise, to accommodate the world that they live in. There are churches that may become comfortable with watching church from your living room or your bedroom. But God's purpose for the church does not change to be a gathering of believing, baptized people in a particular locality who in their very gathering declare their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who believe that they have a mission together to learn the word of God, to worship the living God, and to take the word of God to a lost and dying world. God's purpose for the church does not change. We are still here to shine. Amen. 
But there's a third thing in our text. The resurrection not only affirms who Jesus is, and it not only affirms his purpose for the church to be a lampstand in the world, but the resurrection calls us to worship, to deeper worship, to more intense worship, to more serious worship, to see Jesus Christ in a way that transforms us into his likeness. I've heard it said frequently since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, and I believe the first time I heard it, it was the, uh, the director of uh, the national disease, the, the, the infectious disease expert, and he said something like this. He says, this pandemic of coronavirus, when it's over, will be replaced by a pandemic of mental illness, of mental health issues. And I thought about that, and I, I think, well, that's probably true. But it's only true if you don't experience what John experienced in his isolation. If you see Jesus like John saw him, if you get a fresh vision of who he is and what he's accomplished for you and what you've experienced in him and what he's called you to do, like John, you will endure your time of isolation. You will grow in Jesus Christ. And when you are free, you will get out there and do more. You will plant churches. You will serve. You will reach others. You will worship. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. John saw Jesus and fell before him immobilized. But that's not where Jesus wants us. He wants us overwhelmed with his glory, but not immobilized by his glory. He wants us to be empowered and encouraged by his glory. John falls as if dead, and Jesus puts his hand on him, and he says, fear not. John didn't have to fear the glory of God because he was freed from his sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was cleansed. He was sanctified. The resurrection calls us to worship, to worship without fear, to be caught up with the magnificent, unparalleled glory of Jesus Christ so that, yes, we fall at his feet, but not immobilized. We fall at his feet without fear to rise up again to serve this glorious one. Actually, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not all about trying to figure out all of the 
intricate details of the book, though it's nothing wrong with trying to work at that. But if you miss the point, the point is that every page in the book of Revelation that you read, it should call you to bow before this sovereign king, this glorious king, to bow before him and worship. This one who is guaranteeing that the end of the world ends with the triumph of Jesus Christ. We worship without fear. And when we worship him and are overwhelmed by his glory, we long with sadness for the gathering of the people of God on the Lord's day. We want that because that's what the worship of Jesus calls us to. Without worship, we won't continue to grow. If I'm not worshiping Jesus, then I'm not reading my Bible, I'm not praying, I'm not meditating on the goodness of God. Without worship, we will become selfish. We won't be generous in our giving. We'll take that check from the government and spend it on ourselves and not even think about the work of the Lord in this world. Without worship, we will not continue to go to those who don't know Jesus. And here again, I must quote John Piper because he says it so much better than I can. He says that mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot command to others what you don't cherish yourself. And along with worship, we have this confidence in the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death, the one who holds the keys for both death itself, that is the act of dying, and for Hades, that is the state of death, or the place of death, for the believer, into the presence of God. For the unbeliever, into eternal judgment. Jesus holds those keys. And along with worship without fear and worship with confidence, we shine as lights in a dark world. Even though this book talks about the struggles of the church in the world against all of the powers of evil, 
It's a reminder that the church ultimately triumphs in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will win. And so we shine as difficult as it may be. And along with worship and confidence and shining, we rest. We rest because we know that behind the scenes of a tumultuous world, God is working. God is moving everything in this universe to the inevitable ultimate triumph of the kingdom of Jesus Christ for which we say hallelujah so in these times of isolation and uncertainty and fear and hysteria in these times of disease and times of death we must never forget that Jesus Christ is alive and well. And because he's alive, we worship him as the sovereign Lord. We have confidence over in his sovereignty over the church and the nations of the world. And we rest peaceably knowing that Christ is at work through the church, in a world that desperately needs the gospel. When I think of the triumph of the kingdom of Christ, I must also think of the defeat of the kingdom of this world. The writer of Hebrews says that as believers, we belong to a kingdom that can never be moved. Well, if you're not a believer, you belong to a kingdom which is passing away. And though things may get back to normal, what you might call normal, the present state of this world is a reminder, perhaps a token, of the final judgment that will come on this world from which there will not be any relief. Because the kingdom of this world will perish. So if you don't belong to this kingdom today, then Jesus put it very simply. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus simply said you need new life that God gives you. New life that comes when you repent of your sin and when you believe that Jesus Christ died, is risen, and is coming in victory. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? And for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you have never repented of your sin and surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you belong to a kingdom that is passing away, that will ultimately be destroyed. But you can have new life today in Christ. A new life that will never end, a new life that unites you, that makes you part of a family of a kingdom 
that can never be moved. Simply by believing the promise of the word of God. Jesus said that as many as receive him, to them he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. If you've never repented and surrendered, then in this moment would you pray a simple prayer, something like this. Father, I know that I'm a rebel. I know that I've sinned against you. And I know that I cannot rescue myself. I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus is your son who died in my place and rose again and who is coming again. And today I repent of my sin and I surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord and my savior. I want to be part of your eternal kingdom. I want to be part of that triumph of Jesus Christ at the end. So for Jesus' sake and in his name, save me this morning and forgive me and give me a new life and give me grace to live faithfully for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Father, help some today to receive new life, to become part of a kingdom that will never, ever be moved. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.